First, you should see one of these in and around your chair. Um, and I want you to take it and invite at least one person to Easter next Sunday. There's a place on the back here. If you'll notice, it's got our website and then it's got this tiny little dash and then there's a space above it. That space is where you write your phone number or your email address and your name to your friend so they know how to get in contact with you. So in case they need a ride or they have a last question about Easter or whatever. So these are strategically designed for you to be able to invite people. So grab this and uh, take it with you or take as many as you want. There's plenty outside on the coffee table, info table, etc. Uh, and invite as many people as you can to Easter Sunday. Next, next Sunday you can see it even has the times conveniently on this little thing right here. 9.30 and 11.15. Um, so we want to make sure that you know about that. Now just a couple other things I want you to know about Easter uh, Sunday and actually Easter weekend next weekend. First is we have a Good Friday service at 630 uh, and we'll actually have children's programming for that. It's the first time in 10 years uh, so please come to the Good Friday service. It's, it's a little bit more of a serious kind of somber service as we think about uh, those last few hours of Christ's life uh, but children can come and they'll have children's programming. That's Friday at 630 on Saturday at 11, we have an Easter egg hunt with lunch provided. So come at 11. It'll go till 1. Uh, it, the Easter egg hunt will be strategically for each, each age. It'll be in different places. So please come for that. If you don't have any children, come anyway and just hang out with your church family. Uh, it's going to be awesome. And then on Sunday, as I've said, we have two services. But we are also going to have an early service at 845. Now, the early service will not be like these services. It'll be different. So if you come to the 845, you've totally missed what we're going to do at 930 and 1115. So you still have to come to one of those. But Joe and I are going to do an 845 service outside, weather permitting, um, where we are doing, it's, it's called matins. So an early Easter morning matin service where we, we focus our minds on Easter Sunday. So uh, that's all the things that are kind of going on this for Easter weekend we want you to know about. Um, today, uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. So uh, as you know, we've been uh, going through a, a few different series. We did Judges through the fall. We did Ruth uh, after we did our coffee cup verses, uh, which were just helping us to her learn hermeneutics. We did the ordinances these past couple weeks. And then uh, we finished the ordinances last week. So we're looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, before, the week before Easter. That's what we're looking at today. And then next week, we're going to look at Easter. And then the week after that, we're starting the book of James. So we're excited to be doing that after Easter. We'll just start with James chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're looking in Matthew chapter 21 today. If you're able, uh, I'd love for you to stand with me. We stand when we read the Bible together here at Remedy, if you're able. So let's all stand. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. I'll go through 17. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say back to me, thanks be to God. And so uh, by saying thanks be to God, you of course are thanking the Lord that he would be so kind as to give us his word and speak to us. But also let the thanks be to God serve for you and your mind and heart and soul a, a, a way to say, Lord, the things that you show me, the things that you teach me, the things that I see, I want to say yes to. I want to be astounded by. I want my heart to be affected by. I want to trust in you. So uh, starting in Matthew chapter one, 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, uh, on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd... Uh, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, uh, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to look into your word. I pray that as we see um, all the different attributes of our King Jesus uh, from Matthew chapter 21, that you would move our hearts to be <clears throat> uh, absolutely enamored with Christ. And that as we see just how good of a king he is, that we would um, this day and every day, God, want to continually move and, and shape our lives around who he is. And that we would trust you more deeply for your, uh, your love and mercy that you've shown to us in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, there's a way to, there's a lot of kind of different philosophies on how to write sermons, on what to do with sermons, etc. Of course, you want to exegete the text, but a lot of times whenever you're writing, and of course in sermon class, they tell you, make sure at the very end, especially, that you give lots of applications. So people, when they hear these things, they know what they're supposed to go do. They need to know what they're going to do. So I do have some of that, but the goal of the sermon today is not necessarily to give you a lot of stuff to do. Instead, the goal of the sermon today is for you just to take kind of a, a one step back the week before Easter and just see the picture of Jesus that the Bible is trying to portray to us. And hopefully your heart and mind would just be enamored of that. You, you would be moved towards affections or reminded of just how amazing Jesus is. So the goal of today, while there will be some application, the goal of today mainly is for you to see all these different pictures and attributes of our Lord, our, our King, and just be reminded of just how awesome he is. Just to be reminded of how great he is. Um, so I want you to see the breathtaking, awe-inspiring, life-transforming picture of King Jesus today as we look at Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we're going to see eight different attributes of King Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 21. And you'll, you'll kind of understand what I, what I mean when, when I, we were saying this. Now, if you could, remember in your life, maybe you haven't had this yet, but maybe you have, what is, in your view, the most important week of your life? What is it? When was it? Maybe you haven't had it yet. If you're young, it hasn't happened yet, likely. But think about maybe whenever the most important week in your life is. For Jesus, 
this is, as we're looking at it, the most important week in his life. From, from Sunday, this Sunday till next Sunday, 2,000 years ago, it was the most important week of his life, the Passion Week. Now, I would say it wasn't just the most important week of his life. It was the most important week of human history. So there has never been a more important week in all human history than what we just read until next Sunday. And so... Uh, because it's so important, Matthew devotes one-fourth of his book to it. John, the gospel writer of John, uh, devotes a half of his book to it. So uh, the gospel writers are trying to help us see that it is a, a huge thing uh, for Jesus as he enters the passion narrative. Passion just means suffering. The passion narrative uh, of the last week of, him, of Jesus. Now, I want you to see something um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. We just read Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. I want you to go back one chapter with me to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And I want you to, I want you to see why Jesus drawing near to Jerusalem in 21.1 and eventually in 21.10, entering Jerusalem, this, this move towards Jerusalem that he has is such a huge deal. It's not just, oh, here's a city, here's a city, I'm walking into this city. The idea for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem is huge. And because he's God, he knows what it means for him to, if this is the city line of Jerusalem, to take that step across the city line into Jerusalem. He knows exactly what it means. It means, it means astronomical things. So look at chapter 20, verse 17, and he's going to tell us just how big of a deal it is for him to cross the line um, into Jerusalem. Verse 17 of chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going into Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So it's no small thing to Jesus to walk into the city of Jerusalem. So in, verse, in chapter 21, as we see, he's making these conscious decisions to move towards Jerusalem. He's doing a couple of things. One, he's moving towards direct obedience to God the Father. Every step towards that is a step towards obeying God the Father completely. But more so, every step towards Jerusalem is salvation for you and I. It's assured salvation because he is absolutely being obedient to God the Father to go to the cross in order that he would die for us so that we can be saved. So as you see the footsteps in the dirt walking towards Jerusalem, just be assured that this is the king who loves you going to the cross for us so that we can have life. Now, um, up until this point, through the book of Matthew, the entire time when he would do miracles and he would do healings, etc., he would always tell his disciples, shh, 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 don't tell anybody what you saw. It's a secret. It's a secret. It's not time yet. But as we start seeing here, especially whenever we see uh, him doing miracles uh, at the end of this uh, section that we're looking at, he doesn't say that anymore. The, the messianic secret's over. It's time. It's time for everybody to know who he is. And it will, of course, lead to his death. Um, so today, uh, James Boyce says, looking at this section, Matthew has presented to us now Jesus as God's king. And so we're going to look at the different attributes of the king, the breathtaking, awe-inspiring, life-transforming picture of the king this morning. So verse 21, and when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Jesus drawing near to his death. He's intentionally walking towards a gruesome, horrific death 
that he knows is what's going to happen. And as he does that, he came to Bethphage. Now he's not there yet. And it says he goes to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said his two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey and a colt and untie them. And when you untie them, if anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them. Tell them that the Lord needs them. And then they'll say to you, uh, Okay, basically they'll say that. So just imagine you did this, right? Like I, I'd say, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the local farmer and just, just take his donkey and his colt. And if he says, hey, what are you doing? Just say, oh, the Lord needs them. <laughs> like usually that's kind of like strange, right? No one would think, yeah, that's going to work. Uh, but here it does work. It does work. And, and he's doing this intentionally. There's a reason why Jesus wants to enter into this this. I'm sorry, this particular time, I'm not going to say specific that time. He's going to enter in this time on the donkey. And the reason why is uh, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, whenever David was handing off the, the reign of being king to Israel to Solomon, this is what happened. And I'll, I'll, I'll start in verse 32. And David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehiah. And they came before the king. And the king, David, said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and bring him down to Gihon. So he's going to enter into, Solomon's going to enter in on a mule. And as that, this is kind of the letting everyone know that Solomon's coming in to be king. Well, in the same way, Jesus is going to do the same thing. He was disclosing himself uh, that he he is going to be the king that is going to be of Israel. And so just as Solomon signaled uh, that he's the king riding on a donkey, so Jesus is signaling to us that he is also going to be the king. And so here he says, go get me a donkey and a colt. And if anybody says anything to you, tell them, it says in, 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 the, uh, in verse 3, the Lord needs them, the Lord. So this word Lord in Greek is kurios, kurios. And in the same uh, kind of pulling from the Old Testament, we know this means Yahweh. And so this is signifying for us, Yahweh means I am, the great I am, Exodus 3.14. Who should I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. I am that I am sent you. So in all this, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is calling himself God. He is the divine king. So the first thing that I want you to see as we're walking through this text, the first attribute is number one, he is the divine king. Tell them that the Lord needs them. This is quite striking. Jesus is calling himself the Lord, the sovereign over all things. He is calling himself God here so that everybody knows I'm not just a good prophet. I'm God himself. God needs this. God's going to walk in and signify that he's king. He's the divine king. And then it says, uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, humble and mounted on a donkey, a, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So he's telling all of Jerusalem that the king is coming to them. Now, when we see this, behold, your king is coming. Uh, this is not in Luke and it's not in Mark. And there's a little shorter version of it from John. But it's being quoted from Zechariah 9.9. Now, if you have... Uh, an Old Testament with you there. Uh, if you flip, I don't know, maybe 40 pages to the left, you can find Zechariah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So many, many years before Jesus entered in, it was prophesied from a minor prophet that this was going to happen. <clears throat> And Jesus is coming in 
signifying to everybody that he is the promised Messiah that was told about in Zechariah 9.9. So, not only is Jesus the divine king, but also the second thing is he's the prophesied king. He was told that it was going to happen in Zechariah 9.9, and it's being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. John Calvin on Zechariah 9.9 says, the prophet here, talking about Zechariah, the prophet briefly shows the manner in which the church was to be restored from, for a king from the tribe of David would arise to restore all things. So Zechariah a long time ago knew that the church was going to be restored by this by this coming king that was going to uh, come into the city. And that's, that's Jesus. And he's coming to restore all things. Calvin goes on and says, This king would not be like an earthly king who would rule for their own advantage. Every earthly king get, grabs off their little kind of portion of the, of the earth and their little, their little square or their little triangle or rectangle. And they rule that little section for their own advantage. And he said, Jesus isn't like that. Says, Jesus doesn't just tear off a little piece of the earth and say, this corner's mine. He says, the whole thing is mine and I don't rule it for my advantage, Calvin says. Jesus' kingdom would be for the common benefit of the whole people. And so he is <laughs> completely different than any earthly king ever. He's the prophesied king. Zechariah 9.9 is telling us that. Not only that, but it tells us something else in Zechariah 9.9. Now, Whenever Matthew translates or when Matthew reaches back to Zechariah 9.9 and quotes it, he doesn't quote everything. That's okay. It's the writer's prerogative. Whenever the writer of a New Testament book quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't have to quote everything. And whenever, and whenever he does it, whenever he says, this is what that Old Testament verse means, that's what it means. And so, but he doesn't have to quote the whole thing. But here, uh, he doesn't quote all of it. The next thing that he, uh, he sh one of the things that he doesn't quote, which is in Zechariah 9.9 that I want you to see, is that he also calls him uh, righteous. If you look uh, again at Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous. Righteous. So the third thing that we see about Jesus is that he's the righteous king. He's the divine king. He is God himself as he's declared himself to be. He's also the prophesied king. He was told about many years ahead of time that he was coming. And in Zechariah 9.9, it tells us that he is also the, the righteous king. This means that he is completely holy. There is no sin in him. All little earthly kings who tear off their little portion and rule, none of them are righteous. No, not one. Every one of them are born in the line of Adam just like us. We're all born as wretched sinners. Jesus is completely righteous, completely holy, completely unlike any other king ever to live. He's the righteous king. Not only that, it tells us that he's also the savior king. You can go ahead and put up that one. He's the savior king from Zechariah 9.9 and from Matthew 21. Righteous and having salvation. He's having salvation. This means he's going to give salvation to his people. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says that Jesus was born uh, to save sinners. So he's telling us that he's, he's here to save. Now, we also see that in verse 9. And the crowds went before him were following him saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This Hosanna, this exclamation of Hosanna means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. May, may blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord saves in the highest. And so from Zechariah 9.9 9 and Matthew 21.9, we're seeing another attribute of Jesus. 
Not that he's the divine king or prophesied king or righteous king, but he's also the savior king. And I put the U in there on purpose because I just think it's cooler to do it the British way. Um, that's all. So you can not put the U if you don't want. I just think it's cooler. Um, anyway, so he's also the savior king. He's also the savior king. He's the one that will save us all. Now, here's what happens. Uh, in verse six, it says, the disciples, upon hearing this, whenever he says, go to the local farmer, take his donkey and his colt, and if they ask you what you're doing, just say, oh, the Lord says I need it. And he's going to say, oh, okay. You know, that would never happen with us. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the disciples don't say, wait a second, Jesus, just one question. Did you just say, like, seems like you're saying just go steal a donkey. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Uh, he, he's not stealing, by the way. Jesus wouldn't tell people to, 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 to sin. Uh, but they don't say anything, right? They know who he is. They've been with him for three years. They trust him completely. And in verse six, this is, a, this is just a side note. This isn't one of the points, but it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And I just want to point out the simple obedience that they have. Okay, Jesus told me to do it. I'm going to go do it. Jesus said, do this. That's what I'm going to do. It would be great if we also did that as well in our own lives. Jesus over and over tells us many, many things even especially in the New Testament, that these are, this is the way you should live your life. And it would be great, especially with my life, I can tell you right now, if I just had this heart of simple obedience to say, okay, God, that's what you said, I'm gonna do it. Um, nevertheless, all right, here we go. Um, they brought him the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Um, this sat on them doesn't mean that he sat on both of them. That, that seems like it would be pretty impossible. Uh, I think that means that he sat on the donkey. Uh, and so this is occasion where, uh, and I think the only occasion in the Bible where we have Jesus not walking somewhere, but actually riding on something. Besides whenever he was in Mary's belly, riding with, with his mom on the donkey to, to go give birth, uh, for her to go give birth. I think this is the only time that Jesus wasn't recorded walking uh, and he's riding on a donkey. And so the reason why I already pointed is to signal to Israel that this king is coming into the city to be the king. Now, um, I also want you to think about this, uh, that he's sitting on a donkey coming in. Now, of course, that was what was happening in 1 Kings, but I want, to, uh, I want us to get a contrast here so that we can see something pretty amazing. He's sitting on a donkey going in, and this is, this is of course, to fulfill prophecy, but I want you to see a contrast of this, uh, this tender-hearted Jesus, not, not a wimpy Jesus, right? But nevertheless, tender-hearted Jesus walking into Jerusalem, walking into his sure death that he absolutely knows that's going to happen, that's recorded for us uh, in Matthew chapter 21. Walking in, I'm sorry, riding in on a donkey in Matthew 21, willing to go die. Contrast that with this. Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse one sitting on it called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and his head are like many diadems and has his name written that no, has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heavens arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him um, on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He would tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has, he has written the King of King and the Lord of Lords. Now those are contrast. That's the same person. 
Those are major contrasting views. One is coming in on a donkey, willing to go die. The other one is riding in on a horse with tattooed on his leg, king of king and lords of lords, with a huge army behind him, ready just to destroy all the enemies. Don't miss this, okay? One's the first coming and, and the other's the second coming. If Jesus wanted to, the second coming, the way he came, could have been the first coming. He could have just come in that way. He didn't, right? He chose to come in meek and mild and humble on the first time. And he's coming back the second time to restore all things, no doubt about it. I mean, he is an amazing, amazing man. Um, But nevertheless, I think the contrast is what he wants us to see is that the first entrance could have been like Revelation 19, but instead it was on a donkey because he's going to the cross. He's going to die, not destroy his enemies. Now, ultimately, he does destroy Satan's sin and death on the cross, but Revelation 19 is different. So the fifth attribute I want you to see about your king, our king, is this. He is the humble king. He's the humble king. He is righteous, and he's the savior, and he's the prophesied king, and he is the divine king. He is God himself, but he's also humble. He comes in on a donkey. That's an amazing picture especially when you contrast it to Revelation 19. And then this, it says, uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now this is why this is called Palm Sunday. This is why it's called the Triumphal Entry Sunday. It's because this is what they were doing. Uh, they're praising Jesus like crazy on the way in and around Thursday night it takes a, it takes a bad turn. But as he's coming in, they're, They're spreading these branches and cloaks on the road. Charles Spurgeon uh, says this, uh, looking at this text, he says, Our first parents in their shame made clothes of leaves and trees, but now both clothes and leaves are at the feet of the redeemers. There's no shame here. Uh, They're both, they're they're being put at the feet of our redeemers, of our redeemer, sorry. And not nerds, there's just just one, just Jesus. Um, uh, And so he's pointing out to us just how amazing Jesus is, right? If you keep going into verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what they're doing here is quoting Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, 25, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And so uh, there's a, they're singing uh, Psalm 118, verse, verse 25 in this particular text. Also, in Psalm 118, and verses 19 and 20, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And so, just as Jesus is entering the gates of Jerusalem, that city, righteousness is going to be given to all men by what takes place in Jerusalem. Salvation is coming to the whole world. So here they're saying, Open the gates of righteousness, that I may enter to them, in Psalm 118, 19. And In Matthew 21, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is entering through the gates of Jerusalem and salvation is being given to all people. Righteousness is being given eventually on the cross to all people. And John chapter 12, who's writing the same narrative, he adds that all the people were were screaming, the king of Israel. So if you look at John chapter 12, verse 13, as this is happening, it says, they screamed, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who came in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
So they add something in the book of John, even the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel. He's the king of this entire city, Jerusalem, and really the king of the whole world. So when they yell, he's the king of Israel, Hosanna in the highest. He's the son of David. He's the king of Israel. They're also telling us something else about him. That's number six, that he is the messianic king, that he is the messianic king. He's the king of Israel. Now, when, they're called, when he's called in the Bible, Jesus Christ, that's not like, that's his last name. It's not like John Chambers and Chambers is my last name and Christ just happens to be his last name. That's not it, right? It's, it's, not, it's not his last name. It's a designation. His name is Jesus and the Christ is his designation that he is, that he is the Messiah. He's the messianic king. He's the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, the one who rules and reigns over all of Israel, the promised one in the line of David to come who is the Messiah that is going to take over all of Israel and be its king. So he is the messianic king as well. And so John chapter 12 verse 13 adds the king of Israel to help us get a even a more full picture of the king that he's not just the humble king or savior king or righteous king or prophesied king or divine king but he's also the messianic king. No one else could take this. It's not like you could just pull him out and plug someone else in. No one else. Just him. He's the messianic king as well. Now, I want us to fill this. I want us to fill this. So they're, they're singing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when we get to verse 10. You can breeze past uh, words 3, 4, and 5 pretty fast. And I don't want to do that. We've built up enough from John, uh, Matthew chapter 20 and everything that's going on. When we see words 3, 4, and 5, it, we should pause and feel it. We should feel it. And here it is. And when, here it is, these three words. He entered Jerusalem. Now we know the full weight of that now. We know what that means. We see the disciples with simple obedience to go get a donkey and a colt for Jesus. How much more so do we see radical, unbelievable obedience to God the Father from Jesus right here in these three words. He entered Jerusalem. Before the cross, this would be the last city. All this was, was happening for him where he knows what's going to happen. This was the line in the sand. This is a huge step. He entered the city. And so doing this, <clears throat> he's surely walking into his death. Had he never walked into Jerusalem, humanly speaking, maybe he wouldn't have died by the cross. Now, we can, you know, play fun and say, humanly speaking, maybe he wouldn't have, right? He's going to. He's God the Father. I mean, he's God the Son, and he's going to obey God the Father completely. He's going to enter Jerusalem. But I want us to feel that. He walked into Jerusalem. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Who walks knowingly into their death? What causes that? What would compel someone to walk into their, into their death? I, I wouldn't do that except for one reason. The only thing that, would keep, that would, I would knowingly walk into my death is if that a child of mine, when I got a lot of them, something was going to happen to them. I would gladly give my life so that they could live. My wife, my children. That's the only thing. Love would compel me at that moment to do it. Jesus enters Jerusalem for this reason. 
He's compelled by love for us. He's compelled by love. This is the seventh attribute of Jesus. He's the loving king. Now we've concentrated on thus far some kind of big picture things about him. He's the, he's the um, righteous king, the savior king, the prophesied king. And we're, we don't want to miss this also. He's the loving king. He loves us. So much so that he would walk into a city and die for us. Love for his father, love for his own glory, and love for us compelled him. Don't miss, it's all those. Love for his father, love for his own glory. Anybody else that does that, they're a megalomaniac. Jesus does it, it's because he's God and he has to. He has to love his glory. And also love for us. Love for us. He's the loving king. Now I want you to see just how loving he is. Luke, recording this triumphal entry, gives us something that no one else gives us. Before he walks into the city, this is what Jesus does. Before he walks into the city. This is how much he loves. He knows that when he walks into Jerusalem, that he's going to give his life. But before he walks into Jerusalem, Luke shows us something about the love that he has for them. Verse uh, 41 of Luke 19. He drew near, it says he drew near to Jerusalem and he stopped right before and he's overlooking all of Jerusalem. And what does he do as he overlooks all of Jerusalem? Look what it says. He wept over it. He stops before the city that he's going to go give his life in and he weeps over these people because he loves them so much and he knows that their hearts are so hard and that in these moments they won't confess their sin. They won't repent. He weeps over the city saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that would make for peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. Oh, that you could see who I am and that I'm going to give my life for you. You could have peace with God the Father, but they're hidden from you. We see that in Romans 9, 10, and 11 right now. Until the full number of the Gentiles come in and then just a deluge of Jews, but that hasn't happened yet. And Jesus knows all of this and he looks at the city and he weeps over them. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon you, another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know that the humble king, the messianic king, the 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 loving king, all these, that I was here. And he weeps. He wept for him, showing us that he loves them. But us too, us Gentiles. We're the church and he died for us. And here we see the very compassionate nature, the loving picture of Jesus. This is an amazing picture. And I would just add as a side note, um, the same heart that we should have for people that don't know Jesus. Jesus loves his people. We should too. It should break our heart when we don't see people getting saved. He's the loving king. And it says, he entered the city. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee. 
when most of the people were following Jesus, this sent the religious establishment into a panic. They didn't know what to do because they're losing their grip on control. And so they, uh, they're freaked out. They don't know what's going on. And Jesus entered the temple. Um, and the crowd said, who is this? This is the prophet Jesus from, of Nazareth. Uh, now, uh, of course he is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet, obviously, and we've been, we've been causing that. Now, notice what Jesus does. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you make it a den of robbers. Now, we love this, right? I, when, I, when we... When we're, We've been a Christian for a lifetime. Like, Jesus is no punk. He's no pushover. He sees all these, just throwing these tables over. What are y'all doing? We think when Jesus gets picked on as being kind of wimpy or whatever, and we're like, no, he's not. Did you see what he did with those tables? Yeah. Like we, we think of all the other stuff where he's like meek and mild. But here he's, he's pulling over all the tables and throwing them. And we love this. Now, uh, I'm kind of being hyperbolic. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the point that's going on here is, is pretty huge. And I want us to make sure we see it. Uh, we need to know why Jesus is doing this. In verse 13, he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. So Jesus, being God, knows the scriptures, tells them, I'm turning over these tables, and if you want to know why, it is written. Go read Jeremiah 7, everybody, and you'll know. And so here, he's pointing them to Jeremiah 7. So, in Jeremiah chapter 7, this is what's happening. Um, starting at verse 1. Uh, now, he's going to quote Jeremiah 7, 11, But start at verse 1. The, the word of the Lord came, from Jeremiah to the, from, came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, amend your ways and your deeds. So, Jeremiah is telling Israel, stop doing what you're doing. And in the same way, Jesus is telling Israel, stop doing what you're doing. And here's what happens. Um, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. They sang that to themselves, saying that, you know, trying to convince themselves that they were living righteously, but whenever they were actually using it for their own gain. And it says, verse five, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds and you truly execute justice for one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after your gods to your own harm, then... I will let you dwell in this place in the land that you, that you gave, that I gave of old to your fathers. So instead of using this place for the Lord's glory, they're using it to suppress or oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and they're sh shedding innocent blood and for their own gain. They're pushing away the people that God cares about. And instead of worshiping God, they're taking care of themselves. And then verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after the other gods that you have known, and then stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. So they're worshiping gods and acting like they worship Jesus, or worship God the Father, Yahweh. They're worshiping false gods, only to go on doing all these abominations. And here it is, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, Jesus points all of these people back to there. And he says, it is written, 
My house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. And so what's clear here is that uh, they were supposed to come here to worship God, but they were com stealing, committing, and committing adultery. They were oppressing all of these particular people, and all of this was abomination, and Jesus will not have it. He's going to deal with their sin. He's going to cleanse the temple and get it all out. He's helping them see that you're living just like they were in, Jer in Jeremiah 7, and I will not have any of this happening here. This, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a house of selfish gain. All this unholiness needs to get out of here. So he's not just, you know, being uh, strong just to throw tables away. The point that he's making is that all of this unholiness has to get out of here. That's the eighth thing I want you to see about Jesus. He is the holy king. He's the holy king. Jesus demands holiness from us. Just like his holiness. But here's the good news. Take heart. Jesus gives us this holiness. That's the gospel. What Jesus demands from us holiness, we are incapable of. And yet he still went to the cross. And if we confess our sin, we trust in him, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness is then imputed to us. And we are then counted to be just like him. They came to offer worship in the temple. But while they're away from the temple, they did whatever they wanted. They didn't walk from God. They were coming to worship God, but they didn't actually walk with God. And Jesus, the holy king, came to cleanse and purify and turn over all these hideouts for these criminals and to restore it back to a house of prayer. Jesus is the holy king that doesn't deal with sin lightly, but with righteous anger. And same with us. He doesn't deal with sin, righteous, uh, sin lightly. He was willing to go all the way to the cross and die for us because he was going to hand, take care of our sin. Here's the good news. God has dealt with our sin, not lightly, but with his righteous anger. It, he put all of his righteous anger on Jesus, on the cross, and he cleansed and purified us. We're the criminals. We're the people in the, in the outskirts here selling stuff for our own gain. We're the liars, the stealers, the adulterers. We're the oppressors of the poor. And Jesus is turning all those things over in our own heart, cleansing our hearts, and now making us holy and making us righteous and beckoning us to come and be freely forgiven and drink deeply of this good news that Christ Jesus took our punishment for us. He's calling us to be holy because he offers us holiness. He doesn't offer us, come obey and be holy now. He says, you're forgiven you're completely holy, now walk in that holiness. That's completely different. That's why Christianity is different than any other religion. Everything else is works-based. Christianity is totally grace-based. And this is what he offers us. And then it says this, and the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. That seems kind of random, right? And then verse 15, the chief priest and scribe saw this. What's going on in verse 14 is it's this. It says, and the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He's wanting them to see back in Jeremiah 7, this is what was supposed to happen. And so he overturns all those tables and then he puts on display for them. This is what's supposed to happen in my temple. That's what they weren't doing in, in Jeremiah 7, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to bring the blind and lame and I'm going to heal him here in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes saw these wonderful things that he did and the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. 
and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, oh, this is so great. Now, um, if you know a lot about something, like a whole lot about something, and somebody says, don't you know this? Then you kind of get a little, little bit mad, right? If you know a lot about, I don't know, Panthers football, and you, you're, the, you're the person that knows it, and somebody's like, uh, don't you know about Panthers football that this happened? You're supposed to feel like offended, right? Well, these particular people, the scribes, the Pharisees, etc., they knew the Old Testament scriptures. Like, they knew it very well. They memorized it. They, they, they had the big phylacteries, and they walked around and showed how righteous they are. So when Jesus looks at these people and says, uh, haven't you ever read then out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes have been prepared for That's kind of supposed to be a little dig at them, right? Like, uh, know your Bible, Mr. Pharisee. Um, and so they're like, what are you saying? I do know the Bible. And Jesus is like, no, nah, you don't. Um, and so verse 17, and leaving them, I think it's John 5, where he's like, you know all these things, but they are about me. They're about me. That's what he tells them in John 5. I think it's 5. Anyway, and leaving them, went out of the city, went to Bethphage and lodged there. And so here we see Jesus uh, tells them, that all these things are happening because uh, they're all prophesied. You don't know what's going on. You're not giving me praise. And so these people are going to give me praise because you're not. Now, here's what we want to conclude with. A few things. One, give him praise. We should, we should give him praise. They were not giving him praise. Jesus had, has prepared praise. And so we should not be quiet. We should... We should uh, we should give Jesus the praise that he deserves. He's quoting Psalm 8-2 here. Uh, and we want to have prepared praise in our hearts that we, we sing it out or we live lives of praise to Jesus. So that's the first thing. They weren't giving him praise. We should give him praise. The Pharisees weren't. The next one is in verse 13, he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you make it into a den of robbers. So the second conclusion I want you to see is that we also must pray. Um, if, if someone were to ask you, hey, uh, just wondering, all the things going on in your life, man, it seems like it's a lot. Because whenever we say, how you doing? The first answer is like, I'm good and I'm busy, right? I'm good and I'm busy. And so we're all busy, right? And so if I were to say, oh, you're so busy, man. You should probably have like an amazing prayer life lifting all those things up to God. And you'd be like, no, right? You would. We would. I know you would. So would I. I don't pray, if anybody has ever asked a Christian, do you pray as much as you think you should? We would all say, uh, I should probably pray more. Now, this isn't me putting a law on you. I'm not trying to bind your conscience and make you feel bad. I'm just saying that's, how I, that's my experience. We should pray more. And so the second conclusion is this. Um, let's, let's resolve in our hearts and minds to pray more. In, in light of all these amazing attributes of our king, we should really want to talk to him. We should want to be around him and tell him what's going on in our lives. So the first conclusion is to give him praise. The second conclusion is to pray. If you don't pray, this is coming from a Reformed Calvinist, right? If you don't pray, things won't change. God has, in his sovereignty, ordained prayer to be the mechanism by which his will comes about. If you don't pray, it won't happen. Now, when you pray, he ordained that too. That's, how, that's the workaround for the Reformed guy. But nevertheless, it's true. I believe it's true. Pray, 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 pray. And that lastly is this. Um, verse 14. The blind came to him in the temple and he healed them. Uh, if you're not a believer in Christ, be healed by King Jesus. Confess your sin and be healed by him. 
He's, he's contrasting Jeremiah 7. This is what's supposed to happen where you're oppressing the needy. I'm going to take the needy and I'm going to bring them in and I'm going to heal them. Charles Spurgeon says, We too came into the assembly of the saints at one time, spiritually blind and lame. Jesus opened our eyes and healed our lameness. If he sees anything amiss with us now, we are sure he will not drive us away from his courts. He will heal us at once. Let us all come to him now. So in light of all these things that we know about our king, he loves you more than you could ever conceive. Be healed by him spiritually today if you're not a believer. If you are a believer in light of all these things, just be enamored and awestruck by the attributes of our King Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy that you've given to us. I pray that as we continue and worship through song and the Lord's Supper and giving that you would bless this time. Thank you for uh, this text that points us to uh, the amazing importance of next week as we consider uh, Resurrection Sunday. You're so kind to us and so good to us. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.